If you didn't lose your virginity to watching Captain Lou Albano, whether it was on Super Mario Brothers or in a ring, you didn't live your life correctly. That's right. It wasn't Lou Albano for me. It was Hillbilly Jim. Ooh. Mm, absolutely. But he was actually there. Another story for another day. <laughs> anyway. What's up, Dueling Decades? This is Wax. Peace to all you guys, and uh, thanks for having me on the show. Will it be the 90s or the 80s? Beanie Babies or Crack Babies? Will it be Nirvana or Madonna? Maybe Britney, maybe Whitney. Do you like new metal or new wave? Dave Grohl or Super Dave? I don't know, but now the battle begins. Dueling Decades. Let's see who wins. Dueling Decades. Greetings, Retro Warriors, and welcome to another episode of Dueling Decades, the totally awesome retro game show where Player One and Player Two take the 80s and 90s and try to one-up each other as we debate these two dope decades. On this episode of our game, I, Mark James, the Amish Hippie Nightmare, try once again to pick up a victory in our singles division as I prepare myself for a Dueling Decades video games duel. Coming into this match armed with 1989 as I take on this man. That's Bo Beecraft. Or should I say I'm Bo Beecraft, and I'm representing 1999, the year that uh, had some video games in it. And I'm going to tell you what those video games are. And let me introduce to you the special guest referee for this episode, the Walter Day of the Bidet, Judge Man Crush. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very excited to be behind the desk with the gavel, even though I don't have one. I'm going to ask a lot of questions. Convince me. All right. And the rules of our game, well, they're quite simple. A coin flip will decide which team goes first. The winning competitor will decide the topic of each round out of the five dueling decades categories, movies, television, music, news, and hot products. Although tonight's action will all revolve around video games. So all of the categories have to be video game themed. And the first three rounds are worth one point each with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. Gentlemen, let's play some dueling decades. Yeah, all right. Uh, it just so happens that I have this old beer cap. Is it a red dog cap? Uh, actually, this looks like a Modelo Especial because it still has the foil on the top, oh, so you know it's damn. good. If it was red dog, I'd tell you to put your thumb over the bottom so it looks like Batman eating pussy. <laughs> that, that's not going to happen. What? All right. If you look at the red dog <laughs> logo upside down, it's Batman eating pussy. All right, well, All now right. I have to Google this. Once you see it, you'll never unsee it, man. You're never going to find a red dog, so <laughs> you might as well just go into Google Images. All right, so we're going to do uh, gold side is heads. Back side of the cap is tails. Bo wasn't on mm. last week. Let's have Bo call it. All right, I'm going to go with uh, something everybody should always strive to get, heads. <laughs> of course it had to go on the fucking floor. It is <laughs> Oh, great. Now I got to get up and move. Sadly, it is tails. Ah, well, what do you do? So that means uh, Mark has control of the board. But before that happens, just bear with me one minute. (laughs) I'm glad Mike just popped up out of nowhere. (laughs) All right. Surprise. (laughs) It's a fucking triple threat match. Oh, shit. (laughs) Out of my ass. <laughs> what? <laughs> you should see Mark's face. We're throwing out something Whoa. new. We're going triple threat in this. Mike's in this shit, and he's representing <laughs> what, Mike? <laughs> 1994. Oh, oh fuck. So now we have, and something that uh, John talks about all the time is this big 10-year discrepancy, how things change a lot. You guys are pretty much five years different from one another. Like, yeah. pretty much. So we got a, we got a nice middle-of-the-road guy. It's going to be interesting. So this is what we're going to do. Since uh, Mark won the coin toss, we're going to have a second coin toss right here. Mm, how about a coin purse? Since, <laughs> since you won, call heads or tails. All right. I'm calling it tails. Heads it is. All right. Mike, <laughs> he just jumped in. And you get to fucking pick oh, the nice. board. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with news. 
All right. So in April of 1994, MGM and Sega of America announced that they would jointly create video games and movies and television programs. Sega and MGM said that they would base their new products on original ideas, but also said they would develop games based on upcoming movie releases. Though it never happened, Sega and MGM were supposed to make a Sonic the Hedgehog movie in 1994. It appears there were creative differences between Sega and MGM, and MGM dropped the project. But this November of 2019, Sonic will finally see the big screen, but it's being distributed by Paramount. Yeah, big wow. stuff. A deal that a deal that never really happened. <laughs> oh man. Okay, so you have one new story. Or you have two. I have two. All right, go for it. All right. On um, my second story is the Sega Channel wins Popular Science's Best of What's New Award for 1994. The Sega Channel was a cable subscription that allowed Sega Genesis owners to play a rotating library of games. Subscribers would purchase a Sega Channel adapter that would fit in the cartridge slot and your cable wire would attach to it. Players could download games on their system and would be erased when powered off. The service was $15 a month plus a $25 activation fee. At its peak, the service had over 250,000 subscribers. The service also offered demos, contests, and cheat codes. The Sega Channel officially ended in 1998. Wow. Damn, short run. Do you guys remember that, though? No, that was like I the coolest fucking somewhat. thing, man. That's really cool. I didn't know about that. 250,000, that's, that's a pretty decent number. Yeah. Especially for then. Yeah, you think that's about what 1994, I'm thinking. Yeah. Now, what were they doing? They, was this dial-up? But actually, the, the technology actually forced a lot of cable companies to update their system, and we probably wouldn't have got uh, broadband internet as quickly as we did if it wasn't for the Sega channel. Hmm. It's pretty interesting. I don't know all the technical details. That's, that's above my pay grade, but... <laughs> it's interesting that that started in 94. It seems like they were a little ahead on the curve, like maybe a little too ahead. Sega's always a little too ahead. That's their biggest problem. Had the Dreamcast come out like a year later and had a DVD player, it probably would have lasted longer than like three years. All right. All right. So we're going to Mark since you came in second on that flip. All right. For my news, I went straight to the news source. I went to newspapers to find out what people were talking about for video games in 1989. And I found a couple of great articles that really encapsulate what the video game industry was dealing with at the time. Uh, this first one I found in the Messenger Inquirer, that's out of Kentucky, on Sunday's edition, July 30th, 1989, the headline reads, Nintendo the Champ, but strong challengers emerge, and this was an Associated Press story that was picked up. I mean, it really talks about how Nintendo, who came in in 1986, has gotten to the point in 1989 where their projections for the sales, they're projecting near to $3.5 billion in sales in this year. And this article goes on, and it really projects Nintendo as being the big heavyweight. But then on the article, it talks about this other company, NEC, and how they're going to be launching TurboGrafx-16 and how that's going to challenge and take out Nintendo. And then they're also going to get rivals from another company called Sega. So it foreshadows uh, the possible contention Nintendo is going to be facing. We all know how that turned out. I think TurboGrafx-16 didn't excel the way people thought it would. But this, I think this article written by the Associated Press, it has some really nice stats in it. Really is a, a nice foreshadowing to what we saw in the, in the years to come. It says that Nintendo has forecast sales this year at $2.6 billion. That's up from 1988's $1.7. Uh, the entire industry, Nintendo says, will profit $3.4 billion this year compared with $2.3 billion last year. So... We're really on the merge of a booming industry in 1989, and Nintendo at the time was at the forefront, although facing competition. And they weren't just facing competition from competitors, which rolls me into my second news story. They were facing competitors on the home front as well. Another article I have here, this one's out of the Detroit Free Press, April 4th, 1989. The title of the article is The Age of Nintendo. This one was written by Jerry Adler, and I'm going to post this up on our Dueling Decades website so you guys can read the full article because it is an absolute 
gem. This guy has no clue about video games in the industry, and he just totally trashes them. I'll just give you a few samples of the how he opens. <laughs> I love these articles oh, when oh, they do fantastic. this. Oh, it's fantastic. The Nintendo Entertainment System is an oblong plastic box that sits atop the television set about the size of a family Bible. Inside of it is madness. Inside, creatures swoop down from inside the clouds and send you to a swift, horrible death. Inside, Mike Tyson stands 128 pixels tall, grinning his wolfish street fighter's grin and cocks his mighty fist at your head. Inside is a silicon chip that fulfills the vision of Blake. To see a world in a grain of sand and a heaven in your wildflower, hold infinity in the palm of your hand and eternity in an hour. It is a toy, but it is more than a toy. It is a whole new medium, an immensely powerful agent for disseminating culture. And the culture that it's disseminating, of course, is pure junk, he says. And it just goes on as a, a, a warning. This article actually continues on a second page where it gets even juicier. Do you guys remember when they had people were were complaining of Nintendo-itis about how you get, you know, that, basically carpal in the tunnel thumb? syndrome? Yeah. You know? yeah, 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 yeah. It talks about that and how there was a kid who played for four hours straight and went fucking crazy. And <laughs> At least he wasn't whacking off. Yeah. <laughs> you can get carpal tunnel from that, too. <laughs> yeah, pick your poison. <laughs> he keeps talking about the Mario Brothers as these, like, uh, mute mustachioed men. <laughs> It, it's really bad, and it's really fear-mongering is what it comes out to about the video game industry. Nothing encapsulated it more than the, the, the closing of this article. Nintendo's success is predicated on its feel for what is distinctive about the American psyche, says arthropologist David Surrey of Peters College in New Jersey. Aggression, xenophobia, competitiveness, so much so that Surrey is studying how video games are helping immigrants assimilate into American culture. <laughs> okay. That, yeah. So, if that's not fear-mongering, I don't know what is. I could just picture a bunch of immigrants running alongside <laughs> an old black dude on a bicycle just because they saw it in Mike Tyson's punch out. Oh, I mean, I can break the wall with my fist like Mario? <laughs> but yeah so they warned you about how it's going to destroy your children it's going to turn them into you know crazed idiots but there's one thing in this in this article that really kind of spooked me out it says as night falls in america you can hear the crying rising of the dens of the family rooms of a troubled nation no nintendo until you've done your work or not before school or only an hour a night or a common solution that children need sleep and they should only play on the weekends. This was written in 1989. I still have this argument in my house daily, except it's Xbox now and not Nintendo. Yeah, That's the it's one creepy thing about this, but that's what I got for news. Beecraft, what do you got, man? Oh, for news. Well, it was hard for me to argue this one because I remember specifically uh, you could rent this from my grocery store, which which is just bizarre in hindsight. But uh, well, some of the biggest news to come out of 1999 as far as video games are concerned, and Mike kind of touched on this a little bit ago, the Sega Dreamcast Woo! was released in North America on September 9th, 1999. be the company's final home video gaming system in its 18-year run in the console market. Here's a breakdown of uh, the Dreamcast stats. Sold 9.13 million units before being discontinued a very short time later in March 2001. So this thing had like a really uh, short shelf life, I guess if you want to call it that, uh, set at $199 at its introductory price. So you look at that now, that's pretty cheap, you know, in comparison to stuff like the PS4, the Xbox One, all that stuff. Um, so like Mike said, had this come out maybe just a few months later, had a DVD player and everything in it, might have been a bit of a game changer. But... Um, a lot of popular games released for this platform. Crazy Taxi. Um, one of my favorites was Ready to Rumble Boxing. And that was specifically because I would have been about 11 years old at the time of the release of this thing. And I thought it was uh, just astounding that the women's boobs jiggled uh, in the ring <laughs> when they jumped. I think that's when it started, actually. <laughs> the jiggling. No, I'm dead serious. I think that's when it... Uh, it might have been. It might have been, actually. But that whole Sprite thing came to where the, they can jiggle the boobs now. That's huge. 1999, okay. Like you kind of touched on, a lot of people consider this console really ahead of its time because of the stuff like the graphics, 
and, you know, being a reasonable price point and everything. But shortly thereafter, it would kind of meet its demise because you had the announcement of PlayStation 2. You had Nintendo's GameCube. You had Microsoft announcing the uh, original Xbox console. So they would all arrive pretty quickly after Dreamcast introduction to the, the whole video game scene. In 2009, IGN named the Dreamcast the eighth greatest video game console of all time, setting its innovations and software as driving forces behind it, being one of the top tier consoles in the history of the industry. IGN said the Dreamcast was the first console to incorporate a built-in modem for online play, and while the networking lacked the polish and refinement of its successors, that was the first time users could seamlessly power on and play with users around the globe. So this, of course, you know, that's the way everybody plays video games now. There's really no non-online element to any video game. So on the same token, Dreamcast really incorporated um, in-game audio chat and downloadable content. So they really kind of, you know, like had it not been for the Dreamcast introducing the the online console play, the in-game video chat, the downloadable content, way back in 1999, video gaming as we know it might be a lot different today. Maybe not. We probably still would have had those advances, but I think Dreamcast certainly set the tone for that. Um so that's why I'm I'm going with the the launch of the Dreamcast in 1999. All right, wow, solid. That's pretty huge. I love the Dreamcast. People knock it all the time, but the sports games on the Dreamcast were the best. There was nothing at that time that could come close to it. Now the 2K games and and Virtua Tennis. Yeah, a lot of those are they still look really fucking good. Or C Man, you ever play C Man? No, but I lost a few last night, if you know what I'm saying. <laughs> oh, I do. <laughs> it's all over my rug. Overboard. Oh, okay. <laughs> what's your uh, What's your second news story? My second news story? Ooh. That was a tough one. Uh, not necessarily news. Well, I guess it could be news. Uh, Pepsi actually released a video game uh, in March uh, 1999. Pepsi Man. Yeah, Pepsi Man, a Japanese exclusive <laughs> release for the PlayStation uh, developed by Pepsi, released in March 1999 in Japan. So essentially, this is kind of, I guess I'd kind of equate it to, in a way, like Paperboy. Yeah, you know, the, kind the whole of. The whole setup <clears throat> of the game. Basically, Pepsi Man is running. You have to avoid all these obstacles by jumping or kind of dodging them or getting out of the way. Like the ultimate goal of the game is to help Pepsi Man deliver a nice, cold, refreshing Pepsi to, uh, you know, people in different circumstances. Like you'd have a, a military guy in the desert or something that obviously needed a Pepsi, not water, because fuck that. Um, so, like, it, it, I mean, it's kind of self-explanatory, these type of games. If the player gets hit by an obstacle too many times, they got to restart from the latest checkpoint. Each stage ends with Pepsi Man being chased by an object, including, yes, a giant Pepsi can, which defeats the entire premise of the game in my eyes. Um, in between stages, though, there's like these interstitial uh, video segment type things where they show video of uh, an American man, because obviously, why would he be Japanese if it's a Japanese exclusive game? Uh, but he's sitting there drinking Pepsi, eating chips and pizza while he's watching television. So obviously, if this was a Japanese man, he would be being much more productive and just eating fucking chips and pizza and watching TV. So that was maybe not necessarily quite news, but something I thought newsworthy was that Pepsi decided they were going to release a video game in Japan, because why not? Interesting. And it actually has a, a it has a lot to do with memes, too. I, I remember reading an article about it a long time ago that they used a game to develop early memes and all that shit like that. So it's got some significance, got some legs. But let's look at all of your picks, because there's a lot of shit to go over here real quick. Uh, Mike, starting with yours, um, I already forgot the first one that you said. Uh, it was Sega and MGM uh, announcing oh, right. that they were yeah, going to partner. That's trash, so we'll we'll throw that one out. The uh, the second one you had, though, about the uh, the Sega, what's the name of the system it was? S uh, Sega Channel. Sega Channel. That's pretty friggin' huge. However, I'm going to knock you because, and I know this one for a fact, you missed the ratings that came out in 1994 because of all like the Mortal Kombat shit that happened in 93 that and I remember this because I was in high school. The uproar was monumental, like everyone was trying to like ban those games because of the violence. So the next year they came out with the rating system. And I think it was like around the summertime in 1994. And he did not mention that. So I got to knock you on yours. Oh, man. And Mark, your second story 
it's it is fucking scary because that is still today and i know you and i know you you threw that out there because it was funny and like it's cool to find people that are wrong that do reviews but i don't know how wrong that guy actually is i mean how many kids do you see these days that are just straight up like drones like just want to play video games don't go outside and all that shit so that is fucking scary but go on and read the full article, and I mean, it it really sets it up like it's gonna rot your brain, and you know, yeah, yeah. And I love horrible. those. I, I anytime we can find a movie review, where I think the last yeah. one we found was where the, for Breakfast Club somebody trashed it. Yeah, Molly Ringwald. Well, yeah. Aside from her trashing it now, somebody trashed it in uh, February '85. And but your other story is, I think, is really huge because you're starting that competition. And Sega Genesis, in my I was always a Nintendo kid, and that was only because my parents wouldn't buy me anything else. But they did buy me a TurboGrafx-16, and that thing was it was cool. But at the same time, like it didn't have any games that you could find easily, and it was expensive. All I remember was playing Bonk. So, eh. but the Genesis, I always wish I had because the gameplay was better. I remember going to my buddy's house just to play his freaking Genesis because the games were better than uh, the NES in my eyes. So that's kind of cool because you're starting to see that competition and that, you know, obviously through the 90s, that goes on for a long time. So that's big. And then, Bo, with yours, this is where it's tough because you got the Dreamcast. And like you said, that did kind of start the whole online thing. And obviously gaming wouldn't be like it is today if we didn't start then. But it doesn't mean that that created it, but they were so ahead of their time on everything like Mike said, if they had just waited, because I think it was 2001 when the Xbox came out and um, PlayStation 2, I think they came out in the same year, right? They're both 01. And then GameCube, maybe 02. Or was that 01 also? Yeah, in the ballpark. It kind of played a role in that. I'm sure that that's why they, they ditched it for uh, PlayStation 2. Oh, man, this is tough. It's basically between 88, 89 and 99. I'm going to have to go with 99 on this one just because of the whole oh, online oh. factor of it. Yeah, I mean, that that's pretty much it because that's all gaming is now. So I'm trying to look at it from you know where things were. Mark, if yours was a little bit more specific about maybe the Genesis being released in 1989, then I would have been all over it. But I don't know what that article said. It sounded like it was coming out, not out already. So, And then, uh, Mike, man, if you had the rating system combined i think you would have taken the round but you didn't throw it in there so 99 gets a point so bo you're in control of the board where are we going uh, i think i'm actually just gonna quit while i'm ahead that's uh, <laughs> pretty good pretty good showing for me this week uh i'm gonna go with well it's hard can we, are we doing hot products is that a yeah, thing absolutely yeah. is that a thing for this one all right i'm gonna go hot products for this round all right um i'm gonna start with a game release for Nintendo 64, April 26, 1999, uh, the first in a, a several series of this game, this franchise. I'm talking about Super Smash Brothers. Uh, characters from a variety of other games. This was kind of, as far as I can tell, one of the first games that really incorporates characters from other games. Of course, Disney's got that whole Kingdom Hearts bullshit now, but kind of the same premise. But uh, um, Zelda, Kirby, Donkey Kong, Pokemon... All kinds of different characters kind of rolled into this one game where you kind of use all their special powers and you battle it out to see who's the best of the best and whatnot. Five million copies sold worldwide within two years of its release, which is pretty impressive. Um, like I said, there's been multiple sequels spinning multiple generations of both systems and platforms. Um, so this thing kind of has grown to become a real juggernaut. Like they're still making these games. They're still incorporating all kinds of different characters from different uh I don't know if you want to call them uh, realms or universes, things like that. Uh, the most recent release being Super Smash Brothers Ultimate for Nintendo Switch, released in December of 2018. So we are talking, um, really, going on two decades now of this franchise, and it's showing no signs of slowing down anytime soon. Wow. Super Smash pick. Brothers. I remember that game well. What's the second? What are you pairing it with, though? Second hot product, I think I'm going to go with uh, another one that's really spanned multiple years and multiple platforms. Grand Theft Auto 2. Oh, 
which was released October 22nd, 1999, sequel to the original title, obviously. Not a lot different um, than the first one, which kind of gave it some knocks as far as critics are concerned. Um, Released initially for PlayStation and uh, PC, shortly followed by adaptations for both Dreamcast and Game Boy Color. And going back to it, I said mixed reviews about the game. A lot of people pointed out that it really wasn't a lot different gameplay wise or visual wise, graphics wise um, from the first game. But, you know, you still had a lot of people that remarked about the radio stations in the game, which were always kind of one of the more uh, interesting and enjoyable parts of it. Obviously, those have evolved over time where they have licensed music that's, you know, legit artists and uh, things throughout the years. Of course, it'll be followed by uh, Grand Theft Auto 3, which really kind of helped the franchise come into its own and is a little more based on what we know it as today. But uh, that's my second pick, Grand Theft Auto 2, October 22nd, 1999. All right. Solid. Uh, Mike, go ahead. All right. In a year that saw the release of Street Fighter 2 Turbo in the arcade, Super Metroid, Mega Man X, Doom 2, and Donkey Kong Country, I'm choosing a game and a genre that I never, ever play because the internet told me so. Final Fantasy VI, Ah. also known as Final Fantasy III, was released in late 1994, developed by Square Enix for the Super Nintendo, Widely considered one of the best video games of all time, GamePro rated the game 5 out of 5, and EGM had four reviewers give it 9 out of 10. It's won several awards, one of the very best role-playing games ever created. So uh, that's what the internet told me, and I hope they're right. (laughs) (laughs) I hate RPGs. I never fucking play these. I'm with you on that one, but I think uh, everybody kind of knows Final Fantasy VI. Yeah, it's, it's huge. But now on to my second choice, which is one I'm really excited to talk about, because again, in a year that saw Sega's Daytona USA Arcade, Need for Speed on the 3DO, and Mortal Kombat 2 on the Super Nintendo, I wanted to choose a product that I actually collect for that was a total fucking failure. (laughs) November 21st, 1994, the Sega 32X add-on was released onto the US market with a price point of $159.00 and six titles available at launch. The Sega 32X add-on was an add-on to the Sega Genesis and the Sega CD, which was a great idea since the Sega Saturn was months away and would be more powerful. The 32X was thought to be a cheaper option for those who didn't want to pay for the more expensive Saturn. There's only like 40 games for the system. I own over half the library, and most of the games are horrible. (laughs) Uh, the the system claims to be three times more powerful than a 3DO, which I believe because if you have a Genesis, a 32X, and a Sega, TD, Sega CD, it takes three individual power bricks to power the fucking thing. <laughs> and nine box fans. Yeah. And Sega was only able to ship 600,000 units at launch, and it was discontinued to do to poor sales. I actually remember going into Caldors and seeing them on clearance for like $9. Wow. <laughs> and you threw this pick out to win the round? Well, you know what? Honestly, it's it's interesting because it's a product that's one of the it's one of the many reasons why Sega is no longer in the hardware business. It's one of the reasons why people didn't go out and buy the Sega Saturn. It was a combination of the Sega CD, the Sega 32X, the Saturn, and by the time you got to the Dreamcast, most people were just not going to take the fucking plunge. They had come out with way too much, way too fast, and most of the people buying shit at the time were fucking 14 years old, and they don't have disposable income right. to keep buying all this bullshit. So yeah, 32X. <laughs> Juggernaut right there. Yeah, huge. I'm looking at one right now. Now, why do you still collect it if it's such a piece of shit? Just because it's... Is it hard to find these? No, it's just that the library is small. It's like something that I could possibly complete. Whereas something like the the Nintendo libraries, like over 700 games, right. you know, I'll never complete that, especially with the way games are priced now. I mean, I might never complete this 32X collection. The The most expensive game is like 400 bucks, and I can't see myself spending that. <laughs> is it? What game is it? It's Spider-Man. Oh, it's yeah. probably it's, suck shit. It's not straw. good. Yeah. yeah. It, it's not good. Every time I think Spider-Man, I think of the one from Atari. Oh, that was, was horrid. <laughs> Fucking trash. Oh. Wow. All right, Mark. What do you got in 89? All right, so for my first one, I'm going to go right back to the article I was talking about in my news section. Remember how I said it, it mentioned that Sega was coming out? Well, it 
did mention that Sega was coming out, and it actually does say that the, it's been getting glowing reviews and retail and orders from retailers are surpassing expectations. I didn't really want to give away one of my other picks because we're going to hot products. And my first one, of course, is going to be the Sega Genesis. You know, at first, Sega didn't have a North American sales and marketing organization. They were actually moving all their stuff through Tonka. So when they came to and wanted to come to America, they tried to sell the Genesis to Atari. Atari actually declined the project, saying they thought the console was too expensive. So Atari could have purchased the Sega Genesis at first, but they decided not to. Sega decided to go it alone. They launched it first on August 14th, 1989 in New York in, and in Los Angeles. And of course, we all know the monumental success of the Sega Genesis really driving gaming forward. And I found a quote from U.S. gamers Jammer, Jeremy Parrish, and he really sums this up perfectly. It says, if the Atari generation introduced video games as a short-lived 70s fad, then the NES generation established it into an enduring obsession for the young. Sega Genesis began pushing the medium towards something resembling its contemporary form. The system served as the key incubator for modern sports franchises, made consoles truly international. It created an online subscription service that foreshadowed PlayStation for by more than 15 years and played a key role in enduring the vitality of the gaming industry by breaking into the U.S. market and establishing a market in the U.K. And really, that kind of sums it up. I know it touches upon what Mike talked about, and it really foreshadows a little more in the future than what we're talking about, and that's just the initial launch of this product. But uh, that's my first hot product, the Sega Genesis. And uh, in case you're wondering... They sold 30.75 million of these units were sold. The first party units were sold in the United States worldwide. All right. What's your second product? My second product, we're going to take a little time trip. Oh, boy. Because in 1889, Nintendo was at the forefront of handheld gaming. They were a playing card company. 100 years later, it changed the game of handheld gaming again, of course, with the Game Boy. It was first released on April 21st, 1989 in Japan, followed by the North American release three months later. The Game Boy received praise for its battery life, durability, and it quickly outsold the competition, selling 1 million units in the United States within just a few weeks. With its successor, the Game Boy Color, it sold an estimated 118 million units worldwide, making it the third best-selling console of all time. It's one of the most recognizable devices from the 1980s. It's become a cultural icon. I had one. I know everyone else had one. So there we go. The Game Boy, 1989. All right, let's make this one quick. I'm going to give this one to 89. Uh, it's, it had two systems come out. Obviously, we talked about Sega Genesis before. They were ahead of their time, and they really pushed the envelope with everything else. So you got to give it that. And then with Game Boy, that just put the games in our hands instead of those cheap shit little uh, LED game systems that we were playing. We actually got, even though it was a monochrome screen, that green monochrome, we still got some cool freaking games. It started out with uh, Tetris, which was out for years, but it was amazing on a handheld. So that was huge. You had uh, Super Mario Land was another one that I played a lot which is pretty cool because uh, it played pretty much just like the first game. So I think with all the, the picks that are out there, you guys had good stuff too. Bo, your games are great. But yeah, I'm going to have to go with 89 there. All right. So I keep control of the board. I You don't keep control. You get control. I get control of the board. <laughs> I get a point. There you go. Th that much closer to victory. So you know what? Fuck it, man. We're going to movies. Mm. Oh, this will be interesting. Business is about ready to pick up right here. Because my first movie is everyone's favorite, Back to the Future Part 2. Mm, not not the video game. We're <laughs> actually talking about the movie, Back to the Future 2. Not the crappy video game. Because if you remember, when Marty travels back to the future, and he goes and he finds Gray's Sports Almanac, if you look closely in that window, there's a copy of Jaws, 
for the NES and Burger Time for the NES. And that's possibly the very first time in movie history that they suggested old games and computers may once become collector's items. And if that's not enough, from the very same movie was a, a cameo by the NES classic Wild Gunman. And that's very significant, not only in video games, but also in movies. Because if you think about it, that's the very first time a video game was ever used to set up a sequel. It really set up the entire cowboy themed that was coming up in the third installment. The third movie was trash. <laughs> that's my first one is Nintendo invading the cinemas, the large screen, any way they could, sticking in three cameos in the smash hit Back to the Future 2. Okay, that's a good one. All right, my second movie is... I'm just going to tell you what it is. It's The Wizard. I uh, figured that. Yeah, a boy and his brother run away from home and hitch across the country with the help of a girl to compete in the ultimate video game championship. In 1989's The Wizard, released December 15th, starring Fred Savage, Christian Slater, Jenny Lewis, Bo Bridges, Luke Edwards, and it was also Tobey Maguire's film debut. Uh, during 1988, a shortage of ROM chips actually delayed the production of Super Mario Bros. 3. Nintendo capitalized on this and said, you know what? Since we're delayed anyway, we're going to promote it with the release of a movie. That was The Wizard. Uh, basically, they made a 110-minute commercial for the Nintendo, all of its products, and Super Mario. This was just one level of the media blitzkrieg that Nintendo would do in all of American culture in 1989. The Wizard grossed $6 million in video rentals. It's developed a cult following. Even in 2016, on September 6th, PAX West concluded with a Super Mario Bros. 3 tournament in an exact replica of Video Armageddon from the film. Uh, Fred Savage, Jenny Lewis, Luke Edwards all make appearances at uh, gaming competitions today. So, The Wizard, there we have it. I knew that was coming up. I, I didn't know if it was 88 or 89, but I had a feeling that was 89. And in this type of game, always major points when the movie's about the game. Just like last episode where you had an album about the movie. This, I mean, perfect, perfect pick. All right, Bo, go ahead. All right, I'm going to go an interesting route here with movies because I have a uh, a game that was inspired by a movie and then a movie that was inspired by a game. So it's kind of an interesting twist here. Um, I'm going to start off with Silent Hill. Uh, Silent Hill, the game was released in January 1999. The movie, I believe, was released in 2006-ish. But basically, it was uh, Silent Hill was kind of one of the very first, I guess you might call it, I don't know, there's probably others before but one that was really rooted in like horror and kind of suspense and stuff like that um released in north america january 31st 1999 and then you had the the film adaptation um which was released shit what i do with that oh yeah in april of 2006 so several years later um largely but loosely kind of based on the game so you've got uh elements incorporated from the sequels silent hill 2 uh silent hill 3 and silent hill 4 your main character in the movie was actually replaced with a, a female protagonist uh, because the guy who ad the guy who adapted it thought that um, you know she had many qualities typically perceived as as feminine the the addition of the original character um, so that's my first choice Silent Hill which spawned a movie several years later uh, and then my second choice is actually the video game that was adapted from the film and that is 007 Tomorrow Never Dies. Third-person shooter stealth game based on the James Bond film of the same name. This is the second appearance of Pierce Brosnan's James Bond, although the voice of Bond is provided by a, a different voice actor who is not Pierce Brosnan. Um, not obviously as good as Goldeneye, though nothing really will ever stand up to the test of time that that uh, game, the bar, has set. So yeah, November 16, 1999 is when that one was released. So a video game inspired by a movie and a movie inspired by a video game. Nice. I had that video game. It was actually pretty good. Oh, I thought it was garbage. Wait, which one? Silent Hill or Tomorrow Never Dies? Tomorrow Never Dies. Oh, get out of here. It's fucking terrible. Yeah. <laughs> Absolute garbage. Definitely no gold nines. Silent no. Hill was one of those games that the graphics weren't the greatest, but at the time, it was a scary game. I remember right. uh, going to my buddy Alex's house and we'd play it. He had like surround sound and we'd play it with like the lights off and shit. And you can hear like all the 
monsters or what zombies, whatever the fuck they were. Which terrifying. You know, you in nineteen ninety nine, that was one of the first things you got. So it's kinda cool. Uh I don't know about it. The movie coming out like seven years later though might take off some yeah, it's kind there. of a technicality but you know there's a core uh, you know there. what in this game in this type of uh niche genre thing the way that we're doing it you have to take some liberty sometimes so it's I hard man it's that. difficult all right off to mike mike what do you got wow me man fucking wow me i will <laughs> wait till you hear this on November 4th, 1994, evil meets its match when two brothers feel the power and live the legend and provide the ultimate kick in this fantastically horrible <laughs> double dragon. Oh. Bimmy and Jimmy Lee have made it to the big screen and earned $1.3 million against a $7.5 million budget. In the film, two brothers have one half of a Chinese talesman and they have to keep the bad guys from getting it and taking over the world. In the game, it's two brothers trying to get their girlfriend back, and they fight through the city like the fucking warriors. Uh, the movie sucks, but the video games had become such a big part of pop culture, you started to really see a transition uh, from video games into TV and movies, and that's why you're getting cartoons like Sonic the Hedgehog, uh, Super Mario Bros. the movie, and, and The Wizard. Uh, so, But horrible, horrible movie. Don't watch it. <laughs> Wait, that's the one with Scott Wolf, right? Yeah, and Alyssa Milano's in it. Oh, man. What a cast. Yeah, it's it's not good. But my second film is even worse. <laughs> on November on December 23rd, 1994, Street Fighter the movie was released oh, in the US God. starring Jean-Claude Van Damme as Colonel Guile. The film features your favorite Street Fighter characters doing everything but what actually happens in the game. The movie should have been like Bloodsport, but instead you get a Saturday morning cartoon mixed with Rambo. I, th I think it's fucking awesome that Jean-Claude was doing over 10 grand worth of blow a week while filming this thing. <laughs> and the movie's targeted at kids who are fans of this, like, major fucking game. Uh, the film grossed over $100 million worldwide. The movie sucks, but Street Fighter 2 was was just too fucking big. It, it had to get a movie. And Raul Julia was the That was, like, his last movie, guy. wasn't it? Or yeah, one it's of his yeah. last movie. Oh, it's his last movie, yeah. Man. All right. So you had two shit movies, but at the same time, you had two movies that were video games so that's, that's what i was high thinking. class points right there mark you had one and the other one what was the first one again it was good too back to the future 2 had back three to the cameos from nintendo games in it and uh one of which set up back to the future 3 which i fucking hate back <laughs> to the future 3 is like yeah rocky 5 like should not even be talked about. And the fact that we had to bring it up here, I got have to negate points for that because it's just <laughs> such a fucking turd of a movie. It just kills the entire series. Why would you take it back to the fucking 1800s? Like, anybody gives a shit. Like, we, you know the reason they did that is because you had... Because uh, Mary Steenburgen looks really good in a long dress? It's, ah, fuck no. It's, well, that's, you, not actually, I think, that's not wrong. I, I think she's the reason the movie sucks. <laughs> oh, really? Oh. <laughs> yeah, I think she's the reason why that movie sucks. Wait, what year did that come out? It's like 91. Uh, so, all right. So, it was before like Wyatt Earp and uh, Tombstone, huh? Huh. Trendsetters. Fuck that. Um, <laughs> but you did have The Wizard. But that's a... The Wizard's a piece of shit, too. It's just a cult piece of shit. But I think the same could be said for the two that Mike dropped, too. They're both kind of like culty, bad movies that you watch just because it's kind of funny how bad they are. So just because Mike had two of them, I'm going to have to go with 94, just because it's it's pushing in that direction where video games are now going into the movies. These video games are getting so big that they're like just trying to print checks. Yeah, I, even though they're garbage movies, I'm going to have to go with 94 in this one. So what do, we have a three-way fucking tie going into the two-point round. This is craziness. I don't even know what the fuck we're supposed to do if we end in a tie. A mound of blow. <laughs> $10,000 worth. All right, Mike, you control the board. <laughs> Two-point round. Really doesn't matter at this point. Whatever two you got left, go for it. All right, I'm going to go with TV. Right. All right, so in September 1994, Mega Man, the animated series, began first-run syndication in the U.S. and ran for two seasons and 27 episodes. The series was modeled after the popular video game series and follows Dr. Light and Mega Man as they battle Dr. Wily and his evil robots. 
At one time, it was the number one weekly syndicated children's show in the Nielsen ratings. This is a much cooler Mega Man than we get in the Captain N in the Game Master series. It ran for two years. It would have went for a third season, but uh, there was some some budget constraints. I think they were spending about 300000 per episode. Um, but yeah, Mega Man, the TV series. It only lasted two seasons. That must have been a turd. All right, so what's your second one? All right, my second one is, remember Mutant League football and Mutant League hockey on the Sega Genesis? Nope. Well, how, yeah, exactly. Well, how about the animated series that ran from July 2nd, 94 to, to July February 3rd. 24th, 1996? <laughs> it ran till 96. That had a good run. Uh, the show had two seasons and 40 episodes. Uh, the premise of the show was during a football game, an earthquake releases toxic fumes, mutating the players into unsportsmanlike mutants and battle for the Mutant League Championship. The game's actually pretty fucking cool. I don't remember this show at all, but yeah, it's a thing. It sounds cool, though. The premise of the game sounds cool, but it sounds like they just made a turd. And how could you make that? That was a kid's cartoon, I'm guessing, right? Yeah, it's just not very interesting. Eh. The game's fucking awesome, but the uh, and what did that come out cartoon, for? not so much. This was a Genesis game. Uh, okay. All right. All right. So some interesting picks there. Nothing good, but interesting. Bo, you're up. I, I lucked out with television as far as 99 and, and video games are concerned. And there's one particular show that spawned two video games in 1999, pretty close to one another. And that is South Park, which has been around forever. Uh, one of those two games that I'm going with is December 13th, 1999, saw the release of South Park Rally, which essentially is uh, Mario Kart with South Park characters. Uh, the mayor of South Park has decided to stage a, a big rally series that's going to take place like through the town on the outskirts of town. Uh, that's kind of the premise behind the game. So you get, you know, your favorite characters and you can um, do the whole, like I said, Mario Kart premise. Essentially, you just try to destroy people. Uh, you have mini Porsches. You got police cars, uh, big gay owl buggies, uh, Jeeps, Ooh. lots of other stuff. Um, characters who appear in power up form include Mr. Hanky, Saddam Hussein. Uh, the underpants gnomes and uh, Kitty. So you get um, like a championship mode, an arcade mode, multiplayer mode. So mostly negative reviews, as most South Park games <laughs> tend to have. But you know, I guess it's uh, it ties into television. Yeah. Uh, and then the second game is South Park Chef's Love Shack, which is a 2D game show style party video game, obviously based off the uh, the television show. This was released October 31st, 1999. This gameplay involves playing mini games and the ability to play against other players and a challenge for the most points. So it's essentially kind of like a trivia game. It's like you don't know Jack uh, invaded by South Park, if you remember those games, which were pretty fantastic, by the way. Um, so you get to be one of the four main characters from the show, Eric, Kenny, Kyle, uh, Stan. So it switches between questions and little mini games like throughout the game with a, a mini game ahead of every three questions. So you score points, obviously, by answering questions and, you know, your mini game ranking and all that shit. So uh, mixed mixed to negative reviews for this one, too. It just must be like a South Park video game thing. Uh, but there you go. South Park Chef's Love Shack and South Park Rally both released uh, not too distant from each other in 1999. Damn, that must have been a big South Park year to get two games. I think the show started in, what, 97, 98? So it was kind of like right at the fever pitch of, you know, like something new and exciting as far as cartoons. More, more over like adult-oriented cartoons, too. That was kind of a, that was a really big deal, it felt like, when South Park came out. All right. And everyone at home needs to really realize that when you go into specifics like TVs and movies and music, you're not going to get the best shit. You just got to go with what makes the most sense. And all four of the ones we've heard so far sound pretty shitty, but they're all TV related and video game related. They're all so relevant. They are all relevant. They all make sense. So this this is tough right now. So either Mark's gonna like blow it out of the water with some amazing shit, <laughs> or, shit or, he's gonna, or he's gonna deliver two more sh pieces of shit, and <laughs> my decision is gonna be fucking atrocious. All right. Well, in 1989, we saw the debut of two television series that were directly video game related they debuted on the fox network the first one mike already mentioned and that's captain n the game master kevin keen a teenager from northridge california is brought to another universe known as videoland along with his dog duke to defeat the evil villainous mother brain now this was really the first time 
that an entire series was built around an entire brand of a company. Before, it always had been other properties that were kind of one-offs, much like my second entry, which is the Super Mario Brothers Super Show, which also debuted in 1989, featuring Lou Albano as Mario and Danny Wells as Luigi. The pilot episode actually has Nicole Eggert in it. She's fantastic in that. But the Super Mario Brothers Super Show lasted 65 episodes. I know I watched a ton of this when I was a kid, and then immediately following it after this was Captain N, the Game Master, my other pick. Uh, Both of them had moderate success. They were uh, reruns very, very heavy. Matter of fact, in the later reruns, uh, they swapped out some of the soundtrack for some of the later music that was released once Super Mario Brothers 3 came out. Uh, But yeah. Captain N, the Game Master in Super Mario Brothers, The Super Show, 1989. All right, two things. One, anytime Mark makes a pick, he sucks that pick's dick. Till, like, <laughs> he loved it. Until it was his completion. favorite. He fucking, it was the best thing ever. Yeah, I spent my days after school playing. He lost his virginity to it. <laughs> hey, it wasn't the best show ever, but I actually did fucking watch this show. If you didn't lose your virginity to watching Captain Lou Albano, whether it was on Super Mario Brothers or in a ring, you didn't live your life correctly. That's right. Wearing rubber bands around your <laughs> cock. And yeah, it wasn't Lou Albano for me. It was Hillbilly Jim. Ooh. Mm. Absolutely. But he was actually there. Another story for another day. <laughs> anyway. I'm going to make this easy. I'm going to go with 89 for the sheer fact that you had Mario Brothers in your... The the South Park ones, I wish you had like South Park and something else. The fact that you had two South Parks and the, the shows or the games were kind of shitty, it doesn't really compete with Super Mario. And then Mike, yours were just... Even to your own admission, we're just not very good. <laughs> so I'm going to have to go with 89. Well, no, Me- Mega Man's a big deal, but. Oh, I forgot. You did have Mega Man in there. I still have to go with Mario Brothers, though. No, I. Well, no, but Mark's got Captain N, and that's fucking just great. All right. So Mark's up at this point three to one to one. So two things can happen here. Somebody else can win this round, and we have a tie, which has never happened. Or Mark wins the round and he just fucking obliterated you guys. So let's see how this plays out. But Mark, you have control of the board. <laughs> Obviously, there's only one thing left. And the second week in a row that you finished up with music. All right. So for my first one, we're going to DuckTales for the Nintendo Entertainment Woo! System. Fuck. Released September 14th, 1989. For an early game, this soundtrack was monumental. Nintendo Power would list DuckTales as the 13th best Nintendo Entertainment System game in 2008 in the 44th game all time out of its 285 greatest games. Uh, creative director Matt Bolin of DuckTales called the music production some of the best 8-bit music he has ever heard. Polygon cites the music from the Moon theme as being the most famous piece of music from the title and calling it the most perfect piece of 8-bit music ever written. Uh, The Moon theme was used in the 2017 animated series reboot, so it still lives on. So the Moon theme from DuckTales for the NES Entertainment System. That's my first one. Just to clarify, so this is not a soundtrack. You're just talking about the theme song to the video game? It's the release of the game itself. It was released as a soundtrack. Matter of fact, it was the, one of the first, not the first, one of the first few soundtracks that were released from a game. That's okay. how popular it was. But it's the release of the game, all the music on that, the big standout being the moon theme. And how's that go? Honestly, I can't hum it, but I listened to it today. I never played DuckTales, but I listened to the moon theme and I'm like, oh, I know this. I've heard it before. So, all right. My second selection dates back to 1861. Jesus Christ again. When Russian poet Nikolai Nekrovsky, when he wrote a poem named Kobolinsky, which is the Russian translation for the word peddlers, upon reading the poem, one only needs to feel the building tempo and signature style to know why it was eventually transformed into a popular Russian toe-tapping folk song. All right, so now let's fast forward 128 years. In 1989, Herzaku Tanaka 
remade the song for the Nintendo Game Boy version of Tetris, released in November. From there, the Type A theme firmly cemented itself as one of the most recognizable tracks in all of gaming history. Over the years, the Tetris Type A theme has been in numerous variations of the game, including, of course, the one Bo mentioned, Super Smash Brothers. So the Tetris Type A theme from 1989. What does it sound like? Do 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 do. Yeah, if you go on YouTube, you can actually look up the poem. It's amazing. Yeah, Pro- gotta go I, with probably, the I probably won't do that, but I'll uh, thank you for doing the the tune. I like that, <laughs> extra points. If if you sing it or do the tune, you'll get extra points. I'm just throwing that out there. Oh shit! Yeah, tell All this right. before the guy who can actually sing can go. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> All right, we'll let him go last. All right, Mike. All right. Um, the Double Dragon soundtrack was released in '94 and features Coolio's "I Remember." which I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so Mike will not be rapping Coolio. No, no. Uh, all right, so that's my first pick. That would, it's a, Honestly, that soundtrack's horrible, but there really wasn't much else. I didn't want to pick like something you couldn't purchase, mm. uh, so I went with like movie soundtracks. Uh, the, the, my next pick is the Street Fighter soundtrack. It was released on December 6, 1994, by Priority Records, featuring artists like MC Hammer, LL Cool J, Farside, Nas, Ice Cube, and Craig Mack. Oh, the fuck. album peaked at number 135 on the <laughs> Billboard 200 and number 34 on the R&B and hip-hop charts. The album sold over 500,000 copies in the U.S. and had its only single, Something Kind of Funky, by Rally Rowl, make it to number 39 on the hot rap singles. So yeah, those are some big names though for a game soundtrack, but it was a movie soundtrack yeah. for yeah. a game. Yeah, okay, it's a movie soundtrack, but yeah, it's a pretty hip hop centric album. I mean, and you have I think Razkaz is on there, so that's a bit of a deep cut right there. Okay, you don't have any of the tracks from the first album you dropped. Uh, it's mostly garbage. <laughs> it's it's not even worth talking about. Garbage the band or just garbage in general? No, no. No, just horrible. Okay, so it's just Shirley trash. Manson. <laughs> just terrible. Mostly hip hop, you said, Mike. You get extra points if you drop a couple of bars. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <That's> not- <laughs> oh he does not want the points. Okay. Bo, wrap it up. <laughs> oh, this is uh this was a tough one for me. There was there was a clear cut winner. For me, uh, just because I had such a strong connection to this game, but I'm not going to start with that one. I'm actually going to start with, for music, uh, 1999. Uh, one of the biggest juggernauts of a video game was released November 22nd, 1999, and that is Donkey Kong 64, which was one of the uh, Nintendo 64's best-selling games. $22 million marketing campaign budget uh, that included a 60-second commercial, played at over 10,000 movie theaters during the holiday season. This was uh, also on billboards and print over radio, all kinds of shit. Uh, but one of the biggest things to come out of Donkey Kong 64 is the DK rap. Oh, yeah, do it. Oh, man. Give him a beat. I will <laughs> offer an excerpt from the um, from the DK rap, though. Ooh, He's the leader it. of the bunch. You know him well. He's finally back to kick some tail. His coconut gun, which means his dick, can fire in spurts. <laughs> if he shoots you, it's gonna hurt. He's bigger, <laughs> faster, and stronger, too. He's the first member of the DK crew. Fresh. If Walker's told him he has AIDS. Pretty fantastic <laughs> shit. So, like, this is almost, it's like Rickroll caliber cult following the DK rap is. Like, it's so bad, it's good. Like, it's meme-worthy at this point, and I'm surprised it's not being used in more memes or anything like that. Like Parappa the Rappabad? Right up there. Yeah, comparable. Nice. Probably in the same breath, for sure. So, so bad it's good. Yeah, you could probably go that route. I think that's fair. <laughs> uh, but the second pick that I'm going to go with for an, a couple of different reasons, not only because of its soundtrack, but the unlockable characters that were included in this franchise throughout its years. Uh, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. Oh, shit. Yeah. Yep. 
Uh, game was released in 1999. It was the first in like a series. I think the last one they made was 2015, but Tony Hawk announced last year and I think actually released like a different like new new era or something like that. But uh, another one of those franchises that really had some some legs underneath it. And the the soundtrack, I always remember like kind of I it introduced me to like punk music um, and some different types of music that I really wasn't aware of before. But you had a soundtrack that included uh, Superman by Goldfinger, which is like a standard for me now. Like if I, you know, if I go anywhere and somebody plays that song, I'm always impressed. Primus, Jerry was a race car driver included on there as well. Uh, you had stuff from Suicidal Tendencies, Dead Kennedys. But later on, as the as the the game continued to grow and stuff, you'd have these unlockable characters. And a lot of these were actually musicians. So some of the unlockable characters that appeared throughout the Tony Hawk's Pro Skater franchise, Billy Joe Armstrong from Green Day. Who else was in there? Well, Darth Maul's not a musician, but he made an appearance in there. Uh, Eddie the Head, who is Iron Maiden's mascot, was an unlockable character in the Tony Hawk franchise. Uh, who else do we have? Grim Ripper. From uh, Guitar Hero, which, of course, Activision made that. So there was you know some crossover there. They were allowed to do that. Who else did we have? Judy Nails, another one from uh, Guitar Hero. MCA from the Beastie Boys was included in one of these games. Now, which one of them were introduced in the 1999 game? I don't remember for sure. Going through the franchise, though. Uh, if anything, I would think it's billy joe but it could be it may not have been it may not have been in the 1999 version uh this may they may not have done it in in the first tony hawks pro skater but throughout the the franchise history he had a lot of these guys and a lot of the jackass characters too for some reason which i suppose tony hawks friendship some of those guys which makes sense but yeah uh so that's what i'm going with at least the soundtrack i can i can hang my head on that too because it had a really good soundtrack but uh, those are my picks tony hawks pro skater that soundtrack's from 99 though right yes yeah yeah 1999 what's the dead kennedy song that's on that soundtrack police truck i think was uh police truck on there fuck yeah okay um i hate to do this mike but i'm gonna i'm gonna have to eliminate 94 right now but i mean both your picks makes sense but i think only one of them really stands up and the other one just sounds like i don't even know who the fuck was on it you don't even know who was on it for uh was that double dragon well coolio was on it (laughs) okay (laughs) yeah coolio wins by default you just made my point all right so i I have to eliminate that one off the bat so 94 cannot take this so it's gonna be 89 and 99 mark yours both yours kind of bored me uh, I'll be honest. The uh, you couldn't do the, the the first jingle for me, and the second jingle from Tetris. <laughs> I always put that fucking game on mute when I played it on my Game Boy. Uh, so I'm gonna have to go with uh, Tony Hawk. I remember oh, playing that back Jesus. then, and it was an amazing game. And it, I never knew what the I point of the game, game was. Up right All now. I do is try. Yeah, it was fun. Like you just try to do tricks. You. I didn't even care about score. I just tried to like do crazy shit, but it, it was kind of the same way that uh, Grand Theft Auto was. I never played that either. I just wanted to kill everybody yes. and steal cars <laughs> and then fuck bitches later on. Um, How long can you last with five stars? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what I used to do. Who cares about score? Same thing with Tony Hawk. So this is what I'm going to ask you guys. We're coming down right now. And it's three to three. Tell me why your year should win over the other year. And I'll make a decision on that. Oh, man. I'm going to go with franchise longevity alone. I mean, you look at uh, you look at Tony Hawk's Pro Skater. You debuted in 99. You go to 2015. And now you're you're just kind of rebooting the whole franchise. Like, that's longevity. And then you look at Donkey Kong, who's been around since essentially the creation of video games, it seems like, from, uh, you know, arcade-based consoles uh, all the way up to to platforms now like Nintendo Switch and all the Nintendo's properties and stuff like that. So I think just based on longevity of the franchise and staying power alone, those are two really solid uh, legs to stand on. Do you think that your Dreamcast, like the online uh, availability for the Dreamcast, made the other ones go in that direction also? Oh, we're t- so we're talking like the, all the picks combined? Yeah. I think so. I mean, that was obviously a catalyst for, you know, it was obviously kind of a testing ground for will this work? And is this the future of video games? Is this what players want? Um, 
you know, so incorporating those features, the online gameplay, the downloadable content, which is obviously massive. Now you have all these add on expansion packs that you can download from the PlayStation store or the, you know, the Xbox store, whatever you want to call them. Um, obviously the online chat feature. I don't know anybody that does an online game and not really utilize the, the, the chat feature, the voice chat feature may not be for everyone, but that's really where a lot of the, you know, just the enjoyment of playing, you know, like if I were to jump on with you four guys right now, we could talk while we're playing the game. Uh, that adds a whole new element to gameplay, a whole new fun factor to it as well. Are you, are you meaning we could play games while we're sitting here doing this? I mean, we haven't done it before, but it's certainly not out of the realm of possibility, <laughs> thanks to the Dreamcast. <laughs> so yeah, I, yeah, I think uh, I think Dreamcast maybe not the uh, necessarily the grandfather, the end all be all, or the uh, you know pioneer of that, but certainly uh, dipping the toe in the water, and that obviously led to the the evolution of gaming as we know it today. All right, what about eighty nine? Why would eighty nine take it over ninety nine? All right, well, I'm going to turn this around and kind of use some points that Bo just brought up and some keywords. Pioneer and evolution. 1989 was a pinnacle year for gaming because the gaming industry from the 70s had had a tremendous decline. And then in the beginning of the 80s, 85, 86 started to come back and they were starting to see it build. So what do the video game industry do? What does Nintendo do? What does Sega do? They double down. They introduce new systems. The handheld market gets born, and then with uh, the, the release of the Sega Genesis, launching video games into what we would see it become years down the line. And I don't think any of that wouldn't have ha- would have happened if they didn't have the competition between the two kind of pushing each other forward. So that's why I think 89, as far as video game wise, really pinnacle year for the product. All right. I made my decision. I am going to go with 1989. Oh, I get a win. You oh. pretty much put it where I was going to go. Uh, I think uh, what Bo was saying about the Dreamcast probably would have never happened if the Genesis hadn't taken off in 89. And then they, you know, they put out some bullshit in between. But like Mike said, they were always ahead of their time. So in 89, the competition thing is big too. Just like with, we've said it before with uh, WWE and WCW, you take one out of the equation and the product goes to shit. So who knows if Nintendo would have, because they basically had a mini monopoly going on at the time. So who knows how that might have shaken out if if they didn't have the Genesis to come up in 89. So yeah, so I have to go with uh, 1989, pulling it out squeaker holy shit oh i can't believe i pulled that one out man when mike jumped into this at the last minute i just i had a small anxiety attack i didn't know what was gonna happen i thought i was fucked with a capital f (laughs) wow man excellent game guys thanks a lot for playing in this one i think it was a good job by you guys it's tough with uh did a horrible job i fucking forgot the uh rating system (laughs) well at least i let you know about it oh thank god (laughs) All right, so to wrap it up, I am extremely excited that I finally have a win in the singles division. And if you want to subscribe to our show, you can always head over to DuelingDecades.com or subscribe anywhere podcasts are found on iTunes and, of course, on our good friends over at CastBox. So until next time, Retro Warriors, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful day, everybody. Podcast New York. Be heard.